Fall is upon us, which means the weather is changing. So it's going to get colder outside and you have less daylight in a single day. So that means you're going to be trapped inside. And now you're wondering, what do I do with that time? And so you might want to watch the five top Christian films of all time. What are they? Well, you have to watch to find out. We'll talk about that and more today on Indie Thinker. Don't forget, today's show is sponsored by our friends over at Element Home Loans. If you're looking to refinance your home or to purchase a new home, then you need to go to kevinblairteam.com so that our friends over at Element Home Loan can help you get situated in a new home. Now, I know what you're thinking. Interest rates are higher than they've been in a long time. Or maybe you're even thinking, I don't know, given the uncertainty of the economy, if I can move forward on a home. All I can encourage you to do is go right now to kevinblairteam.com to get pre-approved for a home loan today. It's painless, and you get all of your information up front so that you know exactly what you can afford. They're not going to give you any gimmicks, try to lure you in with a false interest rate. They're going to help you every step along the way to make sure that you can get situated in a home. And who knows, you may be able to afford a home and a bigger one than you think. But the only way to find out is to go to kevinblairteam.com. So do that today, and when you go, let them know that Indie Thinkers sent you. Now, pardon the interruption, but before we jump into the list of the top five Christian films of all time, in my opinion, uh, I wanted to give you a quick disclaimer because you're going to be shocked by the fact that The Passion of the Christ does not show up anywhere on the list. Now, here is why I don't have it on my list. Personally, I view The Passion of the Christ more of a liturgical experience or a worshipful experience rather than just a film. So I don't know that it's even right to put it within, you know, or next to these other films, these top five films uh, of all time. So, so for that reason, it's not on the list because it's in a category all of its own. So before you go to the comment section, I just wanted to let you know that, that that's why it's not on the the list. And then also, before we jump into the rest of the show, I have to make sure to warn you that spoilers are ahead. I'm going to be going into pretty good detail of the plot of these films just to give you an idea of how powerful and how important they are. And I truly hope that it does them justice because not only are they the top five Christian films of all time, some of them perhaps are some of the top films of all time, just period. So I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for watching. Hey, thanks for watching the show. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Today we're going to be crushing echo chambers, but of a different kind of sort. We will still be combining faith and reason, but we're going to be looking at some really good films and hopefully crushing the echo chamber that's legitimately earned that all Christian films are God-awful. Now let's face it, the best that Christian films have to offer on a regular basis are just the worst things you've ever seen in your life. And if that's so, then... I today am going to be rescuing you by showing you Christian films um, past and a little bit more moving into the present that were actually fantastic films because Christian films haven't always been, let's face it, god-awful. Not even God would watch some of these Christian films, but, uh, but, it, but it hasn't always been that way. In fact, if you've missed some of these films I want to make sure that I share them with you because I think that they are life-changing films, whether you're a Christian or not. And, and let me just say this. I haven't seen every single Christian film on the planet, so 
I'm not going to be able to give you the best, you know, the top five Christian films of all time. I can give you the top five Christian films of all time that I have seen. So before you go down in the comments section, and please feel free to do so, and let me know what your top five are. But before you go down in the comments section, yes, I'm going to miss some. I'm giving you my top five. And then you may even question with at least one, I, I, I suspect. But, uh, but I think I'll do a good job of defending that, that why that one is even considered a Christian film. But again, we'll have to get there. And that's, by the way, the, the number one film. Um, so that being said, I want to introduce you guys to a time in which Christian film was actually really, really good and really well done, especially as you might have a little bit more time on your hand as fall kind of kicks in, and maybe you want to watch a film with your family or with your spouse or a significant other, and and these are some films that I highly encourage. They're inspirational. Uh, they're, they're well acted. He's the son of the original G, and he was sent to Earth to elucidate the way that we should be. What? Like surprise, there are good Christian films that have been have have that have been well acted, uh, as and so I'm gonna I'm gonna share those with you, and and it's my hope again that you'll not only crush the echo chamber of all Christian films are horrible, but that also maybe I'll introduce you to some films that you've never even seen before, never even heard of before, that will really be impactful to you. Uh, I think that they're, they're films that are that are must-watches. So uh, let's go ahead and jump into it. I'm going to give you top, um, uh, I'm going to start with number five. We'll work our way down to number two. I'll give you some honorable mentions, and then we'll jump into number one. So let's jump into number five. So number five on the list is the film Chariots of Fire. Now, Chariots of Fire is a film uh, about a historical event. It's about the 1924 British Olympic team. And it follows predominantly two of the Olympic athletes running in the British Olympics. It follows a guy named Harold Abrahams, who is a Jewish man. And then it follows Eric Little, who is a Protestant Christian. Now, we'll get to their relationship and their differences and, and why that's important in the film in just a moment. But first, the main focus of the film is, is not arguably Eric Little. And Eric Little is known as the Flying Scotsman, and he was known this because he almost runs like Sonic. He fl flings his head back, flings his arms back, and he, fl fl he runs wildly, uh, not with the gait of, of a normal runner. In fact, one of my favorite quotes is from Eric Little, and it says this, when he was asked why he runs the way he does or why he, how he runs as fast as he does, he said this, the secret for running as fast as I possibly can is I go as fast as I can, and then when I cannot go anymore, I go just a little bit faster. Now, I think that's loosely quoted, but essentially, this is the kind of guy that Eric Little was. He gave 110% of everything that he ever did, and this is especially the case in the aftermath of this film when Eric Little finally leaves Olympic running and athletics and joins the missionary field where he will eventually die, and he will die in a prison camp because he will go to be a missionary in China, and then the Japanese will come and take him prisoner. But before any of that happens, he has an interesting run-in with a guy named Harold Abrahams. Now, part of the reason the story is so great is that Harold Abrahams is Jewish and Eric Little is Protestant. And this is a, a story about faith. And it's really a story about faith in 
and conflict because Harold believes, and rightly so, that a lot of people do not care for him because he's Jewish, and so he finds love and acceptance and care from this this guy, Eric Little, who is actually kind of a consternation for Harold because Harold wants to beat Eric, and Eric is just so talented that he's having a hard time going up against this guy, and so there's this constant feud between these two guys. Now, Herod wants to prove himself because he's Jewish, and he feels like he he wants to show the world that that Jewish men or Jewish people are just as good as everybody else, and that plays throughout the whole film. And there's this beautiful kind of message throughout the whole thing of acceptance of people regardless of your differences. But of course, it's a sports film at the end of the day, so it's also about the triumph of the human spirit. And so you definitely see that as these men give their all to become the best they can at their craft. But the real reason I think this film is really so amazing is that it's not just about sports and it's not just about the human spirit and it's not just about differences, whether it be faith differences, racial or ethnic differences. It's really it's really powerful because it's also about this, that the most important thing in life is not sports or gold medals. It's, it's something bigger than that. It's faith and things that come along with faith. Because ultimately, the story has its climax when Eric Little is awarded the top running spot, but his race, his his heat, is on Sunday, the Sabbath. And because Eric Little will not violate the Sabbath and, and run on the Sabbath, he refuses to run in that race. Now think about this. This is a guy who has worked his fingers to the bone, pushed his body to the limits, worked as hard as he possibly can to get to the pinnacle of his athletic career in the Olympics. And he finally gets to the to the place where he can run his race, his 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 most dominant race, and and he refuses to do so because that race is going to take place on Sunday. Because I told myself, if I win, I win for God. And now I find myself sitting here, destroying it all. But I have to. To run would be against God's law. So really, really super interesting. But but the story doesn't end there because the next thing you see is that because Eric would not run on the Sabbath, that that he then has the opportunity to run in a different race. And he runs in a race that he is not the most skilled at, and yet he still gets a gold medal in that race. And so the film leaves us with this idea that that, yeah, you can still be a winner and you can still do what you never thought you would do if you put your right priorities where they belong. And of course, this is where the great line in the film that, that Eric Little says comes into play. And he says this. I believe that God made me for a purpose. For China. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. The idea in that statement is just simply this. Eric is struggling with his call to be a missionary and struggling with the fact that he's very good at running. And he has to justify to his sister that he feels like running is a sort of mission field because when he runs and he achieves what he's aiming at and when he gives his all, he feels God's pleasure as as he's running. Now, again, uh, his story will end on a rather sour note if you did not believe that ultimately giving your life for something that you believe in matters more than actually living a long life. And so we get this idea throughout that there are more important things in life than some of the things that we think are so important. And 
Eric Little embodies that. And that's why Chariots of Fire is definitely on the list and is my number five. Now, number four film on the list is Beckett. Now, Beckett stars Peter O'Toole. You may remember him from really odd movies in the 90s. Peter O'Toole. Sorry, Peter. Peter O'Toole stars as Henry II, and he's got his role buddy on his side, who is the titular character, Beckett. He's got Richard Burton, who plays Thomas a. Beckett. Now, these guys, like I said, are role buddies. They roll hard and they roll deep. They carouse around together. They get drunk together. They do all sorts of debauchery together. Uh, Thomas a. Beckett is the best friend of the king. And the king starts to have some issues with the Archbishop of Canterbury, and then that Archbishop dies, and Henry II can now elect a new archbishop. So, of course, he elects his drinking buddy as the new archbishop of Canterbury. Now, Thomas of Becket is absolutely floored, and he's wondering why in the world would he be chosen. But Thomas jumps into the role with both feet and experiences a bit of conversion as he jumps into the role and takes it way more seriously than his best friend ever intended him to do so. Now, as you can imagine, Henry thinks that Beckett is going to be his stool pigeon, his errand boy, and that he'll do whatever he wants. And much to his dismay, Beckett sides with the church and begins to throw Henry into an absolute fit, which then puts Henry in the position of plotting to kill Thomas Beckett. In a drunken frenzy, he calls out, Will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest? A priest who mocks me. Are all around me cowards? Well, some men hear the king say this, and they march on over to the church, where they then kill a man named Brother John and kill Thomas of Becket on the church steps. The aftermath is that the king is punished for his crime, and then he canonizes Becket in his remorse and repentance. And so Thomas Becket serves as a great symbol throughout. Now, the, the film is only number four because there's some slow moments, especially when he's hiding from the king. But ultimately, the grand narrative of the, sto of the story is one that's just absolutely beautiful. And it's, and it's this, that men can change, and men can experience change. I mean, it reminds me of Rocky. If I can change, я думаю, что каждый тоже изменился. And you can change. Вы можете измениться. Everybody can change. And so it illustrates the power of change when faith comes into the picture. But like all great films, it also illustrates this: that there is something worth standing for and dying for. And Thomas Beckett pays the ultimate price. Now, the third film on the list is one that's very similar to to the film Beckett. And this is A Man for All Seasons. A Man for All Seasons stars Paul Schofield in the titular role as Sir Thomas More and Robert Shaw as Henry VIII. So yeah, we got another Henry and two guys going at it here, a religious guy and a king. Um, but then also too, this film stars a very unhealthy and rather hefty looking Orson Welles. This 1966 British historical drama is centered around the character Thomas More and his relationship with the king. Thomas More is a wealthy landowner and an attorney, and he's working his way quickly up the ranks into the king's favor. 
as Moore is working his way up the ranks and into the king's favor, the king starts to develop a fancy for a woman that is not his wife and then wants to marry this woman. And Moore is a devoutly religious man, so he will not approve of the marriage or take an oath that says that the king is in good standing with the church because of this marriage. The king wants Sir Thomas to bless his marriage. I will not take the oath. I will not tell you why I will not. You have more regard for your own doubt than the king's command. And that oath he cannot take because the oath ultimately names the king as the supreme head of the church. And because of his liaisons with Anne Boleyn, uh, Sir, Sir Thomas More cannot approve of the king being the head of the church. And therefore, Thomas More is placed in the Tower of London and eventually placed on trial and found guilty. Now, one of the reasons this film is on the list and has such a high place on the list is because of the way the film is done. I alluded to this before, but essentially, it doesn't rush the action. Throughout the whole of the film, Thomas More is battling internally with his decision to not honor the king's wishes and recognize him as the head of the church. Throughout, Thomas More isn't necessarily the bravest or necessarily the boldest. This film doesn't sugarcoat the the struggle that people have when it when they're really trying to figure out if they want to be courageous. In fact, you don't really hear Sir Thomas More's real heart and and his conscience on the matter and a, on a deep level until the very end of the film, once the sentence has already been read and that he will be given the death sentence. It's at that point in time where he says, hey, I'm an attorney, and I know that whenever you give a sentence before you do that, you always give the accused an opportunity to speak. And it's in that moment where he gives an epic speech condemning the king and what he's been doing. If this be not enough to keep a man alive, then in good faith I long not to live. Nevertheless, it is not for the supremacy that you have sought my blood, but because I would not bend to the marriage. But we don't really hear that until the very end. And so because of the realistic picture that it shows with the struggle of what it actually takes to be courageous, that's why this movie has such a prominent place. And I think the end of the film really kind of illustrates how good the film is when Sir Thomas More tips the man who's going to execute him. And right before he gets his head chopped off, he says, I die his majesty's servant, but God's first. Now, that's just a beautiful way to end the film, but it's also a beautiful way to encapsulate the whole film because Sir Thomas More wants to honor the king, but finds that he can't because he has this moral conflict, and only toward the very end of the film does he finally take that stand. So I highly recommend this film if you want to really be challenged in the way that you view courage and really be inspired by what it takes to actually have courage. This is a great film. All right, so now let's move on to number two. And this one has a close and special place in my heart because the movie is about another Christian character that is absolutely one of my heroes, and that is the movie Luther. Luther was made in 2003. It's a historical drama, and it boasts the acting chops of people like Joseph Fiennes, who plays Martin Luther, Alfred Molina, who plays the evil John Tetzel, and many more. Luther begins with... Martin Luther's kind of lapsed Catholic career. He's trying his best. He's trying his best to be a priest, but he just can't hack it. And he's humiliating himself all over the place, including of in front of his father. And he's struggling internally, and he beats himself up constantly until the advice of one of his fellow priests 
encourages him to accept a grace-based religion and not a works-based religion, and he experiences a sort of conversion after already being a Catholic. Now, I have to just stop right there and just tell you this. So much of the modern-day church doesn't tell this kind of story because so many people were quote-unquote Catholic or Christian back in the day. There's so many stories of people who were actually converted within the movement of the religion that they boasted they were a part of because they really weren't a part of it. And this is kind of the beginning of the story with Martin Luther. And I think that's vital to the rest of the story because the deception of religion and how to push back against it is on full display in this film. Martin Luther makes his way down to Rome where he's going to do a pilgrimage and he is just waiting for the blessing of a lifetime, the the holy experience of a lifetime as he enters into the, the Vatican and sees the holy city and goes to these monumental churches. But instead of having that kind of experience, he has a sort of wake-up call when he sees the absolute debased way that the priests consort with prostitutes and the way in which they use people, especially poor people, for money. Martin Luther is trying to work his way up the steps, and he's paid his money trying to, I think, get his uncle out of purgatory or something like that. Um, And he sees all of these poor people doing that, and it just hurts his conscience. It simply paints the picture that he's having questions about the way in which the Catholic Church is finally run. And of course, this culminates in the hammering of the 95 Thesis to the church doors in Wittenberg. That act of defiance puts him in the crosshairs of the Pope, along with a bunch of other writings in which he mocks the Pope and calls him any number of names. Now, if you're like me and maybe have a little bit of boyish tendency inside of you, you think Martin Luther is absolutely the man because he seems to have such little regard for his life and is willing to mock and ridicule things just as he sees it. Now, the great scene, of course, in the film is where Martin Luther has to stand before a council and where he's asked to recant from all of his works. And one of the great parts of this scene is, is that Martin Luther seems to, in this scene, kind of warm himself up into the courage that he actually needs to resist the Catholic Church because he says, just show me the works and then we'll have a conversation about those. And they refuse to show him the works. And he just says this, if you can't show me the works, then I can't recant. And here in this moment is where Martin Luther gives his most famous line, I think it's fair to say, and he says this. My conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot. And I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Now here in that moment, you see the acting chops of Joseph Fiennes because Martin Luther is absolutely uncertain of what will come next, but he knows he's sealed his fate with those final words. One of the reasons I like Martin Luther's story is not just because it is one of the most monumental and important works and and acts in the history of the world, and not just because even Joseph Fiennes is a phenomenal actor throughout the whole thing, but because this, because it doesn't sugarcoat so much of what Martin Luther saw, but it then also to the aftermath of who Martin Luther was and what his actions caused, because suffice to say, history tells 
an interesting story. As much as people want to say history is written by the winners, the reality is, is, is while that is true, we do get the truth from history. And kind of the naked, honest truth about Martin Luther is that so much good happened from him, but there were also some bad things along the way. And so because it doesn't sugarcoat, because it shows Martin Luther in all of his brave bravado, but also the very human side of Martin Luther, I just absolutely love this film because all true heroes are human beings at the end of the day. All of them have the same struggles that we do. Uh, so it's a great film, one that I would encourage you to watch. It didn't make a lot of uh, fanfare, and it also didn't even make a lot of money, but it's well worth the time to watch. Now, before we get to number one, I want to give a couple of honorable mentions, and we'll do this real quick. So honorable mention number one is End of the Spear. And End of the Spear is just a great film. It's really well acted as well, but it's also just an interesting story. Um, now, I don't have a lot of time to get into the, the premise and the plot of the film, but suffice to say, missionaries go into the interior of Ecuador. They go reach an unreached people group, but it's a warfaring tribe and all of these male missionaries die. Now, one of the reasons I like this film is because it shows the missionary endeavors of the church, which are chocked full of fantastic stories. And so this shines a spotlight on, on one of those stories. In fact, one of my favorite quotes from Jim Elliott and one of my favorite quotes just period is that Jim Elliott, who dies as a result of having a spear shoved into his chest, said this, that a man is no fool to give up what he cannot keep. And so he he and the other missionaries really exemplify what it means to be a Christian missionary, and this film does a great job of portraying that. But I also like this film because it does a pretty decent job of portraying the supernatural, because it's well reported that the Aka Indians, who these men were, were ministering to, after they killed these missionaries, saw their spirits leave their body and saw angels kind of escort these guys to heaven. Now, I don't know what you think about that, but suffice to say... Um, the way in which that reveal comes at the end of the movie is really, really well done. It doesn't come off as cheesy, and it's a really hard thing to do. So for that reason, because it kind of illustrates a fantastic story of heroism and the plight of missionaries, uh, but then also does a pretty good job with the supernatural, I really like End of the Spear. And then another film that you have to watch simply because of its acting chops and because of its subject matter is the movie Shadowlands. Now, Shadowlands is about C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest Christian authors of all time. And C.S. Lewis um, ended up marrying a woman who was terminally ill and shortly after they get married, uh, dies. And C.S. Lewis will never remarry again and was only married for a short while before this woman died. And um, he knew this woman was ill when he married her, but he loved her so much that he wanted to do it regardless. So that in and of itself just shows that Shadowlands is a great love story, but it's also a story about pain and it's about suffering. And this story was actually kind of the catalyst for his book, The Problem of Pain. Uh, so it's it's a great story, a great love story, and it's a great theological story about how pain and how Christianity kind of flow together, and C.S. Lewis is, is one of the best for that story. And um, I should mention, too, that the main role of C.S. Lewis is played by Anthony Hopkins, so also one of the, the greatest actors of all time, playing one of the greatest theologians of all time. So great film. All right, so now to number one. And you may be surprised at what my number one is, but my number Number one is Braveheart. Now, some of you are already thinking, Braveheart, 
that's not a Christian film. And if you don't know what this film is, then I highly encourage you to go back and check it out. But the reason Braveheart is a Christian film, we'll have to wait because I'm going to jump into the plot real quick. For those of you who don't know, Braveheart is, of course, about the freedom fighter William Wallace, who starts his journey dealing with the oppression of the English and reluctantly becomes a freedom fighter when his bride is executed by the English soldiers in his village. William Wallace will come out to defend his his wife and defend his honor and will kill those English soldiers. Now that there are English soldiers killed and William Wallace to blame, he knows that they only have one option here, and that is to fight. And so William Wallace stages one revolt after another until finally epic battle sequence after epic battle sequence happens as the Scottish begin to fight for their freedom against the English. Now, if you've seen the film, you know some of the greatest battle sequences of all time, some of the greatest moments in cinematic history as William Wallace stands up for freedom and gives maybe the, even that great speech, you know, what will you do with your lives 10 years from now, lying on your bed? Will you give up each day of your life from this day to that to come back here and tell our enemies that you may take our lives, but you'll never take our freedom? Really, this movie stands out not just because of its battle sequences and not just because of its portrayal of courage, but because of its fantastic writing. And this is why this movie is Christian, because many of you don't know this, but the person who wrote this film is Randall Wallace, who supposedly is a ancestor of William Wallace. And Randall Wallace is a very outspoken Christian. And in the writing of this film, he said that he relied heavily upon the Gospels and the story of Jesus. Now, this can be seen especially in things like when William Wallace is finally put into prison and is awaiting his execution. He will be given poison. William Wallace will take that poison and he'll pretend to drink it, but then he'll spit it back out. Now, if you know the story of Jesus, you know that this comes directly from the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus is offered a... a pain-numbing agent, gall mixed with wine, but he refuses to take it. Now, then you also have, of course, the uh, the kind of betrayal of Robert the Bruce and William Wallace, and you have that kind of being the Judas figure throughout. But Randall Wallace writes this very loosely historically based film from the story of Jesus. And all throughout, you can see the story of Jesus playing out in the life of William Wallace. And this is, of course, no more the case than that William Wallace, at the end of this film, is willing to die for the sake of giving freedom to each and every one of the people of Scotland. And of course, this is the ultimate story of Jesus, that Jesus's death earned freedom for the world. And so hopefully you can see through that, that this truly is a Christian film in every sense of the world. And it's a truly great film. It's epic. It's well acted by Mel Gibson, who is not only the director, but, but the actor. And perhaps this is a little bit of nostalgia, but also I lament I lament this film because outside of war films, kind of World War II and that kind of thing, we don't really see many historical uh, biopics or great grand epics from history being done much anymore in cinema. Uh, a lot of that space has been replaced with the big budget action Hollywood film or superhero movie. But, but we don't see these ancient historical films brought to life very often anymore in this big, big budget fashion. In fact, I think Braveheart is perhaps one of the last of its kind. And for that reason, it definitely has a special place in my heart, but also a prominent place on the list as number one. 
Now, I'm sure throughout there's things that I could have said but didn't say, and maybe you've got some insight into some of those movies that you'd like to share. You can put that down below. If you've got a different top five, I'd love to hear your top five Christian films of all time and why you think they're so important. But again, you can leave that all down below in the comments section. But maybe more importantly, if you watch one of these films and you've never seen them before, I would love to hear what you have to say. I'll put some links down in the uh, description of this podcast where you can access some of these films absolutely for free, and I think that you'll really enjoy them. So if you do that, I'd love to hear from you. But that is all the time we have for today. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, and go with God. You can catch brand new episodes of Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman every Monday and weekly bonus episodes to keep you thinking throughout the week. But you have to subscribe and click the bell to be notified when new episodes drop. If you enjoy this content, make sure to like this video and share it with friends.